Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone. I'm David. I support Gen X Grown Up on Patreon, and you should, too. Don't you want to keep this great content coming? So you know what to do. Go to genxgrownup.com slash Patreon and just do it. Gen X Grown Up is a YouTube channel website and audio podcast you're listening to right now. All made for and by people who love exploring media, games, tech, and toys of yesterday and today through the eyes of Gen Xers who refuse to grow up. Your dinner cannot just be french fries. Basically, life sucks as a grown-up. Welcome back, Gen X Grown Up podcast listener, to this backtrack edition of the Gen X Grown Up podcast. I am John. Joining me as always, of course, is George. Hey, how's it going, guys? You know that Mo is here with us. <laughs> hey, everybody. One of the many great things about growing up as Generation Xers is the caliber of our movies. A handful of talented directors honed their craft and brought us some truly great films during the late 70s and throughout the 80s. And few can say they delivered as many landmark movies as the subject of this backtrack, writer, producer, and director, John Landis. <laughs> oh, yeah. In fact, we spent an entire backtrack talking about John Landis' film, The Blues Brothers, which mm-hmm. we'll, we'll touch on in a bit. And I uh, I see the ponderous thought on George's face. Well, like, before we get into the fourth list, <laughs> email let's go ahead and set this up we were talking before the show i'm not so sure how i feel about landis anymore you i i know i don't like him (laughs) i just don't like him i don't like him and it's we'll talk about it as we get into it it's Mm -hmm. not just going back and rewatching some of these films there are some things that we're going to get into about him specifically when we talk about Mm -hmm. one film that personally yeah now that i've learned more and more looking back through documentaries and other stuff that i i just don't like him yeah i made a lot of real Realizations during the course of preparing for this backtrack that we're going to dig into, most assuredly. First, though, it is time for a quick look at the mailbag, fourth listener email. There's three of us. We know we're going to listen. If anybody else listens, you're the fourth listener. And we have two fourth listeners, which I guess is, is that fourth and we fifth? We have a fifth no, they're listener. Both, they're both fourth. Yeah, they're, they're both, both fourth. fourth. <laughs> <laughs> they're tied for fourth. Yeah, new math. Yeah. Well, they both wrote in about the same backtrack. Oh, okay. So that counts. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So it's, that's why you put them together. Yeah. Ryan L. wrote in. The subject line of his email was TV and movie cars talking about the backtrack we did just a month or so ago right yeah Ryan says I've loved cars most of my life and a lot of that comes from the cars as characters I grew up with your episode made me dig deep into my memory to think about what would top my list okay Mm. I love what makes people think about their own like Mm -hmm. what would my picks be so especially because that last segment we did where we each picked our our favorite yeah your favorites right right and you picked the goofy Mr. Bean car (laughs) why are you calling I love Mr. Bean it is a goofy car Mr. Bean, There's come nothing on. wrong with saying goofy. I think goofy's a compliment in that case. Okay. <laughs> right. Let's pretend it was a compliment. Exactly. Let's pretend. So, <laughs> so Ryan says, setting aside the icons listed, my pick is Rhodey from the mostly forgotten pole position cartoon. Holy crap. That was definitely crap. forgotten. Because that, that had did not last long. That. What a deep cut. Yeah. He said his partner, Wheels, was basically a cartoon 65-ish <laughs> Mustang, but Rhodey was from the future. And 40 years later, no car manufacturer has come close to give me anything like it. Very true. Mm. Yeah. 
I had to go dig up some episodes of Pole Position because I saw that email. I'm like, oh my God, I forgot there was a Pole yeah, Position I, cartoon. <laughs> I mean, it only lasts like one season, right? I think so. Yeah. You know, it's like 15 most episodes. Most of yeah. those 80s or 70s cartoons, mm-hmm. though, they lasted one season. They just kept doing repeats all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I thought they were all new. I didn't know the difference. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, thank you, Ryan. The other fourth listener that wrote in also subject line, Gen X TV and movie cars is Ted. Thank you oh, for writing hi. in, Ted. Hey, Ted. Yeah. Ted says, love the episode. You guys nailed it. Wow. Oh, we nailed one. Holy yes. crap. About time. <laughs> Only took us uh, 120. Yep. <laughs> Just about. Times two. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. You had everything from the era. Except oh, dot, dot, dot. oh maybe we mean, didn't nail it. Yeah, apparently. Okay. Nail it. yeah. <laughs> you missed the Lamborghini Countach. I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, it was what a movie or TV. Does it feature a particular? Here, here's what he says. Let's go on and see. Okay. Let's not wonder. Let's keep reading okay. Ted's email and say right. uh, the exotic car of every red-blooded boy's fantasy. Obviously, I, mean, I had a poster in my room yeah. of Lamborghini. Of course, I did not. But okay. Who didn't have the poster right beside the Maxell blown away on their wall? <laughs> well, I'd never had a Maxell poster, but definitely had a Lamborghini. Yep. I had neither. I I think I had Heather Locklear. What else did I have? I don't know. I might have had Heather Locklear on a Lamborghini. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> it's been a while. You didn't have the Farrah Fawcett poster? I had that one. That was a good poster. I didn't have the Farrah Fawcett poster. I, Heather Locklear was the taller one that had the pink bikini. I don't mm-hmm, know, we're that's going right. down a tangent now. That's all that's a different right. podcast. <laughs> Welcome to the backtrack Gen about X posters from the 80s. Posters. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't ask George, like, what do you have for dinner last night? But ask him what color bikini. There's bikini on the poster. He knows. Yeah. So he doesn't quote a particular TV or movie. It just kind of permeated, I guess, you know, culture, I guess. It he's did. Saying. It was a pretty much, it was like on posters. It was everywhere. Yeah. yeah. So it didn't come up as our top TV and movie cars, although it was featured. It wasn't like focused from mm-hmm. one particular movie or TV. So, right, fair enough, Ted. He says, still, you're batting 950, so don't get too down on yourselves. Okay. <laughs> That's a sports thing, right, George? I, I, yeah, I appreciate the permission <laughs> to not feel bad about something that wasn't in a TV or movie. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> he says, you are my appointment podcast. Keep up the excellent work. Cheers, Ted. Oh, awesome. That's cool. Cheers? Really? Cheers. cheers. Ted Danson, cheers. Cheers. I think that might have been coincidental, but okay. maybe not. Okay, we'll pretend. It, it was, was really right. smart if it was if it was planned. <laughs> he did a great job. Hey, Ted, you're betting 950 on your references. Good job. (laughs) Thank you, Ryan and Ted, for writing in. We love it every time the fourth listener hears the show and decides they want to write in and tell us what they think about it. We love that. If you'd like your email featured here on the show, it's easy. Just hit us up at podcast at genxgrownup.com. We read every single one, and most of them, like Ryan's and Ted's, eventually make the show. All right. We're going to find out why George and maybe I aren't as big a fan of John Landis as we thought we were when we get into the meat of this backtrack right after this break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Got your happy price, price line. Be sure to subscribe to or follow Gen X Grown Up wherever you listen. And while you're there, rate and review the show too. It helps more than you know. From the dawn of man comes Schluck. A beast from 20 million years ago stalks the streets of today. A love stranger than King Kong. 
a monster more powerful than Godzilla. See, a small California town learn the true meaning of terror. Bananas! Call out the National Guard. <laughs> this is going to be the best sense. In this backtrack, we are focusing on the Gen X era films of legendary director John Landis. And I mentioned at the head, you know, maybe we have differing opinions of him. I think we think maybe not all of his stuff held up as well, but we're going to get into all of that. Let's start by talking about the man before we get into particular films we've selected. Oh, sure. I mean, so I did a little research on this. So he was born in Chicago, which makes sense since most of his movies take place in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Oh, (laughs) August 3rd, 1950. Mm -hmm. It was said that he was inspired to go into directing from watching the Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. You remember that one? The Harryhausen oh. stop motion, right? Yep. Yeah, Harryhausen yeah. stuff with the, yeah. the skeletons. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, that's awesome. You see, he worked as a gopher for 20th Century Fox, so obviously he wanted to get into that business early on in his life. Foot in the door. Seems like that was a way that a lot of guys got into the yeah. film business during Back that then, era in the yeah. 60s, 70s. They started off as gophers, peons, mm-hmm. uh, set people going to get stuff, whatever. Grip, and then whatever next thing is. you know, somebody. <laughs> yep talks them into, you know, they talk somebody, I've got this great idea for a movie. Give me $500,000. Okay. You got my coffee. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you're not too far off actually, because. Yeah, actually, I think that is what happened kind of, because this is something I didn't realize that he was actually an assistant director for Kelly's Heroes. The uh, World War II TV show? About the robbery with Tully Svalas, Don Rickles, all those guys were oh, in Oh, the original film. The film. Before, yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh, I'm thinking of Hogan's Heroes. Oh, that's yeah. a whole no, different no, no, that's a TV show. No, the movie, the movie. <laughs> I see nothing except yeah. John Landis. Right? Yeah, that show would not be made today. Uh, and so, and he replaced the film's original assistant director, who became ill and was set home. Hmm. Mysterious circumstances. Maybe he yeah. gave him the bad coffee with the <laughs> yeah. spoiled creamer. Go for, get me some coffee. Oh, yeah. here's your coffee, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> and his first film, he uh, directed his first movie when he was 21, and it was called Schlock, which he wrote and shot in 1971. I don't mm-hmm. know that much about that movie. <laughs> Uh, I saw the poster. I thought this may be something John may have seen. I don't know. Right. Have you seen this one? You know, I have never seen it. However, as soon as I saw the poster in my research for this John Lattice backtrack, I need to find this film. So first, <laughs> it's a stupid parody film, but it's basically a Bigfoot movie in disguise. So it's right up my alley. <laughs> oh, how oh my is God. it yes. that you keep working Bigfoot into all these damn podcasts? He's everywhere you want to be, man. Bigfoot is there. <laughs> so in the movie, Schlock is a prehistoric ape man and he ends up terrorizing a southern california town because obviously some kids ended up in his cave and disturbed him and he comes out and wreaks havoc it was written directed and starred john landis okay yeah you're setting this thing up for success he was schlock he was the guy in the ape suit (laughs) good lord Somebody had to do it. Yeah, it was a parody of like old monster movies. It was it was meant to be goofy. Oh, okay. They shot it in twelve days outside wow. of the L.A. area with a budget of sixty grand. Wow. And most of that came from Landis's personal savings. I was going to ask who gave him the money. No, nobody. nobody <laughs> not like to go out in the woods dressed up like an ape man. You're not getting my money. Yeah, no. <laughs> and it's a parody <laughs> on top of all that. Pretty yeah, right on top of that. Right. Well, so he he wrote it in '71. He shot it in '72, but he couldn't get it distributed. No, I guess not a big surprise. Probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Couldn't get it distributed. I got the best movie ever. How many copies do you think he had for 60 grand? He only had like five reels yeah. that he was running around in his car with or something, I'm sure. <laughs> probably he's probably carrying yeah. around with him. Well, one way or another, Johnny Carson caught wind of this goofy little movie. And he had John Landis on the show and they showed clips of it. Oh. oh boy. Yeah. And so after that, it got released theatrically in the U.S. in 1973, thanks to Johnny Carson stepping in to this young, unknown director. 
Proctor, who at the time was, what'd you say, Mo, in his 20s, 21, 22? Yeah, 20, early cylinders, early 20s at that point. Oh, man. I mean, so it had the one thing that if you got in the 1970s made your career, and that's the stamp of Carson, right? We see it with mm-hmm. comedians. We see it with yep. actors. We see oh, it yeah, with this director time. now. If Carson put you on a show, liked you, talked you up a little bit, you were golden in your career for the next 20 years. Okay, here's something. I just I had to look up the Rotten Tomatoes on this movie because I was just curious. It's Did you have to? The, Did you have the to? tomato look? meter, 71%. Look at that. Now, the audience score was 44%. That's like three voters, and they're all John's friends and cronies <laughs> in the Sasquatch <laughs> Movement Club or something. Well, if they were all my gronies, that would be 100%. So clearly somebody poisoned the well. Yeah, well, but- somebody didn't like Landis. So... <laughs> <laughs> oh, maybe that's it. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I've never seen it, but now 70-something percent? To. Yeah, 71. Now I have to. Oh. Now I have to see it. No, <laughs> you don't. <laughs> I do. <laughs> it might be the best one we talk about today. I don't. That's not true. That's <laughs> it's going to be a next podcast. He's like, I know what mine's going to be. <laughs> so we're going to yeah. talk all about Schlock. No, no, no. Schlock. <laughs> Schlock, that was the beginning of his right. career, though. So we're going to move into, we're really focusing on the Gen X era films. We've talked about the man. Now we've selected a handful of his most notable films from the 70s and early 80s. And we're going to dig into all of those, both what we think about them, what we like, what we don't like and what we thought of them looking back at them after all these years. And we're getting started right after the break. Stick around. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to Gen X Grown Up. But if you have a friend who's not yet listening, why not? Tell them about us. They'll thank you later. The Kentucky Fried movie heralds the return to traditional values. I'm not wearing any pants. Film at 11. It is a film of heartfelt passion. A great love story. Oh, take me to the drive and prove you love me. It explores the subtle nuances of interpersonal relationships. I don't want to keep bringing this subject up because I don't want to talk about Bigfoot or Sasquatch oh. or Yeti or anything oh, else with John. It's okay. But go no, ahead. No, you don't bring it up. The first film that we're going to talk about in this group of 70s films of John mm-hmm. Landis, Kentucky Fried Movie from 1971. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> There's a segment where one of the characters, because Kentucky Fried Movie, it's all these different clips and stuff, you know, and Mm -hmm. there's one of the segments of the film where a guy goes into a movie theater. On that movie theater, there was a damn poster of Schlock. (laughs) I didn't know Schlock was his movie until we started talking about it for this Mm -hmm. podcast. I wow. only recognized it because I said, oh, look, there's a damn Sasquatch poster in Kentucky Fried Movie. John's going to talk about it. So, oh, man, oh. I had made that connection. Oh, man. That's awesome. Now, George, you said you had not seen this film before prepping for this show, right? Yeah, that's very yep. true. It came out in 77. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was 
six years old when it came out. Obviously, didn't see it. John, you were eight. Mo, that made you 10, I'm guessing, yep. when this film came out. I doubt any of us saw it in the theater. <laughs> yeah, I did not. I'm sure we didn't. <laughs> I only heard about this movie later on during the VHS rental era that yep. happened in Same the here. early to mid-80s where it really started taking off. Mm-hmm. And the only reason I heard about it was because other friends of mine had rented it and came to me in school and said, hey, you need to go see this movie. It's got lots of boobs. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't have a lot of them, but they're front and center when they're there. That's true. Well, yeah. First 1977 for a kid in the early 80s. That's I, a lot. After yeah. watching this movie now, there's a lot of boobs in that movie for the era. There's a I lot guess of boobage. so. Yeah, there's a couple other scenes. Like yeah. Boobs per minute, BPM. It was pretty high on the index. <laughs> well, in case you're like George and haven't seen it, Kentucky Fried Movie, it's not really a movie. It's not a story. It's a series yeah. of unconnected sketches that parody film genres and other stuff. There's one, mm-hmm. a couple of them are like exploitation films. Yep. There's one that's like a kung fu themed film. Yeah. It's half the movie almost. Kind of softcore porn is the, those are yeah. per minute came in right. there. It's a bunch of goofy little sketches thrown together. And it was collaboration with Zucker Abram Zucker, the Zazz oh, team, yeah. the people that later did Naked Gun and uh, mm-hmm. Airplane, Airplane and things like that. Same guys. And this is one of the ones we're going to talk about that I did not have to go back and rewatch. I have watched this enough for all of us repeatedly. <laughs> <laughs> After having watched it one time, I have one question for you. Why? Why would you go back and watch this film? It's awful. I watched it again. I actually, I laughed still, actually. See? I mean, there we go. <laughs> I, that's I'm not going to say they're not funny lines, one-liners mainly, or slightly funny segments, but this movie does not stand up to the test of time. I, I, I I, I mean, I think a lot of the references are old, which makes it just kind mm-hmm. of dated. Uh, sure. There's the president coming into office at that time. He was a Democrat. And there's the OPEC stuff that was going on, the oil right. embargoes mm-hmm. and yeah. whatnot. Which probably made it a little bit harder. I watched it again and it's still cracked. I don't know. It, it, I still laughed. I still thought it was funny. Wow. I chuckled. It's George. It's what do you want out of a movie? Like there's not a great story in this there's film no, to be there's zero story. There's not great cinematography. There's not great performances. <laughs> it's just people being goofy. And a lot of like Bill Bixby is in it briefly. Yeah, you see all these mm-hmm. little, yeah, Donald Sutherland, all these little people sprinkled James in. James Bond was in this movie. Uh, Roger Moore? No, George Lazenby. Oh, oh, that, oh, that wow, James Bond. That James that's Bond. how Holy bad the cow. movie was. It couldn't even rate Roger Moore. It could only be George Lazenby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I still enjoyed it after rewatch. I did rewatch it. I haven't seen this one in years. And it's definitely one of really? those like in college, like student union movies and stuff like that, that they had. Like this was one of the movies mm-hmm. that they had there. It just reminded me a lot of Airplane, obviously, because it's a you mm-hmm. know, similar writer, similar style. Sure. I just found it funny. I don't know. I just laughed. <laughs> That's why I watch it. It's one of those things that we call ironing movies, right? It's like I, I can, yeah. while I'm ironing clothes, I can put this on in the background because I can see it without looking at it. I know every scene. Right. Yeah. It's just the goofy little sketches and I'll poke around the corner. I want to see this part. I want to see... We are building a fighting force of extraordinary magnitude. You know, I want to see the fistful <laughs> I mean, yeah. of yen or something. It's goofy, goofy stuff. These men don't know who they are or and don't care. I mean, come on. <laughs> I don't care and don't care. <laughs> I will say that I loved all the digs they put at Enter the Dragon. Because that's obviously oh, yeah, fistful of yen is Enter oh, yeah, the Dragon. Yeah, yeah, right. Big time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I loved all the little jokes. The best one for me was how they kept reusing, you have our gratitude. Gratitude. <laughs> 
<laughs> because that was one of the lines that friends of mine, when we talked about watching Enter the Dragon the first times, we love Enter the Dragon, but that line, corny as hell from the original movie. <laughs> yep. yeah. I love that they made fun of it in the parody. It needed to be made fun. It is, yep. Before we get out of Kentucky Fried mm-hmm. Movie, there's a little trivia that I've always loved. I forget where I first learned it years ago, but Landis had a different initial name for this film. And both of them got rejected by the distributors because they feared that having these names on the marquee at the theater would cause confusion. Okay. The first name he had was Free Popcorn. (laughs) Okay. All right. You can see the problem there. Yeah. And the other one was Closed for Remodeling. (laughs) Yep. Talk about putting a bullet in your own foot at the opening of your theater. Genius. But it would have been brilliant if they would have allowed it. But yeah, oh, right. it was stupid. And so yeah, just the chaos of free popcorn, but it says out front, no, no, no. That's, That's the name the of the movie. Name. Sorry. Like you That's could it. do that yeah. these days and that would put that movie on a skyrocket. It would make a billion dollars day one just from one of those two names because it oh, would be all be over goofy. the internet. Like, yeah, because yeah, people talk it'd about be it. be memes everywhere. People be talking about it. It's an okay film. <laughs> There's some funny one-liners in it. A couple of segments. I did like the love record segment. Uh-huh. Yeah, that was that big was big Jim Slade. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> every record comes with Big Jim. He bursts through the door, and it's got like dun, it's like a march in the background. Dun, right. dun, 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 dun. <laughs> <laughs> and especially when he takes the woman out of the house through the door, they leave. The guy, yeah, they leave, and the guy left on the bed, the husband or whatever. He's like, bye. <laughs> he's just <laughs> like, okay, thanks, record. I appreciate well, it. That record guaranteed satisfaction. And she got it. So there you <laughs> go. <laughs> For the record, too, this did get a Rotten Tomato score at 81. There you go. Which is Jesus pretty respectable. Christ. More of my no. cronies, George, voting on yeah. Rotten Tomatoes yeah. for me. Thank Must you. Be. Wow. <laughs> The other 70s film that we're going to talk about, also a John Landis production, Rotten Tomatoes score of 90, so you had to make our list to talk about, and that is National Lampoon's Animal House. Oh. 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 Great movie. Star vehicle for John Belushi. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. A synopsis is, in 1962 college, Dean Vernon Warmer is determined to expel the entire Delta Tau Chi fraternity, but those (laughs) troublemakers have other plans for him. Yeah, they do. (laughs) One of the great Kevin Bacon game movies. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Everybody's in that movie. A lot of links for Kevin and bacon through this film. I still, to this day, I love this film. I think I've seen it maybe, I don't know, 20 times over the (laughs) course of my life. Probably watch it once every five years or so. Mm. It's a fun film. I'm not going to say it stood the test of time if you watched it new, but if you Mm -hmm. watched it a lot like John did with Kentucky Fried Chicken, this is one of those same kind of films that holds you and you can ironing while you're watching the movie and see all the scenes for me. Yeah, I know this one holds a special place for you, Mo. I think you said this is one of your dad's favorite films. He cracked it, especially with the horse, right? Where they just freeze frame him? (laughs) Yeah, because, okay, it's an R-rated movie, right? I'm 11 when this movie comes out. Mm-hmm. My dad comes home having seen it and tells me, you have to see this movie. <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and my brother takes me to go see it the next day. <laughs> and I was like, dad, this R. He's like, no. It, and all you got to do is mention the horse scene, the horse having a heart attack. And my dad uh-huh. would just crack up every single time. He just, I don't know why. He just, that just hit him right the right spot to make him laugh. There's something about the over the topness of the acting in this film that for me makes it not as good as I remember. I rewatched it in preparation mm-hmm. for for this show I'm like all right i'm gonna watch animal house it's gonna be great and i'm, I'm not sure it's great anymore like, so it, how are it, you gonna call this film out for overacting and you're happy and okay with 
Kentucky Fried movie because that's all that was. Well, that was supposed to be overacted, though. That was supposed to be overacted. Overacting was the point of that one. <laughs> yeah. I think. Animal House had that as part of its point too. Uh, I think. It, but it was trying to be a real movie too, and so like it doesn't hold up as a real movie because it's trying to be. Whereas the mm. other one was just being goofy sketches. You know, it's I, okay. I, I, it is subjective. I just didn't enjoy this as much, even as Kentucky Fried. I mean, For I'm not trying reason. to say mm-hmm. the movie holds up today because I don't. Mm-hmm. I yeah. don't think it does. But if it's one of those that you loved when it came out, I think it is easier to hold in my heart than Kentucky Fried Movie would have been. But Mm -hmm. it's hard to say because I didn't watch that movie back then. So, yeah, you know, you don't have that frame of reference. Yeah, I rewatch it. It was still funny to me. This one was still cracked me up, too, just because, I mean, John Belushi was great in this one. He was. He was. Yeah, he was a star of this. Whether he was meant to be or not, he was. I mean, he had like three lines in the whole movie, maybe four lines, but it was great. And just the whole, I don't know, it's just the absurdity of it was just really funny. And that these adult men were in college still, right? They had older guys playing these college dudes. And but you're right, John Belushi, what he can do with just a look, just mm-hmm. raising his eyebrow and that goofy knowing grin is like, mm-hmm. oh, we're off to the races because he's going to do something fun. And it, yeah. he, he draws me into the film more than anybody else. Yeah. yeah, he definitely does. I think it's it's a movie that the star of the movie was it's kind of like Caddyshack in that regard. Bill Murray was mm. not meant to be the star of that film. But yeah, but it was, Bill yeah. Murray's scenes are the one that everybody talks about later right. on. Right. Yep. And mm-hmm. I think that's the same way with Belushi and animal house. And I'm not a hundred percent convinced that these films are successful because of John Landis. I am more convinced that these films of his that are successful are successful because of the actors in front of the camera, maybe even taking over and doing their own thing uh, mm. more than him being a quote-unquote director. I don't know if either of you are going to agree with that as we go through these, but... It's... It's hard to say. I guess, I mean, I see where you're coming from. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. The thing is also, I mean, there are directors that allow that kind of stuff too and are willing to listen and willing to let people be themselves. Like to know, like just get out of the way and let John Belushi be John Belushi. Like the whole cafeteria Mm -hmm. scene. I mean, again, you know, just let him just do what he's going to do. But, you know, is it that because he's really good at casting and then he can just sit back and relax after that? But he didn't cast. That's that's something that I've watched in a lot of documentaries lately. Directors almost never are the casting decision makers. It's often the casting agents. But even more so back then, and we'll talk about what we get later, there's a particular film we're going to talk about that brought into question the great control that directors had over their films, mm-hmm. is that he is a captain of the ship. If the movie is good, he gets the credit. If the movie is not, he gets the blame. True. And especially back in the 70s and early 80s, that was very much true. Directors had a lot of power over the films, more so than the studios did sometimes. Yep. So even if it wasn't his talents that did it, he was at the helm. And so he gets the credit for it. Well, and as we're finding out in retrospect with a lot of things that have happened in the last five years or so, that's not always a good thing that these directors have this much power. No, no. And <laughs> <laughs> You're right. <laughs> so, all right, we get back from the break. We're finally moving into one of our favorite decades, the 80s. And we're <laughs> going to start up with uh, the John Landis films of the early 80s. Stick around. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes. And luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Califato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts. And I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style. And together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling and all in approximately seven minutes. Each episode of Gen X Grown Up has show notes loaded with links where you can learn more about our topics. And there's even more to see and hear over at GenXGrownUp.com. I had the most absurd nightmare. <laughs> I was poor and no one liked me. I know what you're thinking. You see Paul getting bad? 
We can make it, baby. Me and you. Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy are trading places. Help! Help! Anna wants your bag, man. Help! Help! John Landis kicked off the early 80s. You know, he knew a winner when he saw one. He had uh, John Belushi, so he brought John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd in, coincidentally, together to work on the Blues <laughs> Brothers in 1980. Okay. Uh, now, he didn't bring them together. That was All written right. for them together. Right, right, right. But he's the captain. He I'm, gets the credit for I, that. I'm not giving him the credit for that one. They came up with those characters themselves on SNL. That's true. That's yeah. true. But he was the boss of that film. Now, I don't want to dive into the Blues Brothers here. We spent an entire backtrack yeah. mm. on the Blues Brothers. We know the synopsis. You know, Jake and Elwood have to save the orphanage where they grew up and tons of musical acts and just of the Landis films probably my favorite definitely I think no, of this I, list yeah, my favorite uh, probably of probably, all of Landis oh, for films. Me too. If you want detailed notes about this film go back and see our previous entry <laughs> the Blues That's Brothers. Right. That's yes. right. <laughs> I'll, throw, I'll throw a link in our show notes right directly take you right to that Full podcast. dedicated backtrack <laughs> to that one so I'm not going to retread that ground Blues Brothers in 1980 so let's move along what's, what's the yeah. next one we're going to touch on? So let's jump next year 1981 I mean, he was pumping okay. out movies like crazy. An American Werewolf in London. Oh, okay. Remember, that mm-hmm. came out in 81. We're going to talk about American Werewolf in London. I'm I'm happy because I okay. did really like this film. Well, good. Well, Rotten Tomatoes, 88, just so you know. So you're in good company. It deserves it. And Mo, give the synopsis real quick too, just sure. in case yeah, somebody yeah, out there yeah, hasn't yeah, seen worse. it. So this one, two American college students on a walking tour of Britain are attacked by a werewolf and none of the locals will admit that werewolves exist. Yeah. And hilarity ensues at the next full moon. Oh, hilarity. Oh, okay. Hilarity. <laughs> That's a big word for this film. I love this film when I first saw it, when I was a kid. I think I saw Mm -hmm. this film probably around 85, 86, something like that at that point. It was, at that time, my favorite werewolf or monster movie of all time, of all my movies that I had seen, which was probably, what, 40 movies at that point? I wasn't like I was Mm -hmm. really into my movie watching career. It didn't hold up. I hate to say it. I just rewatched it today as we're (laughs) recording this thing. They tried to do some controversial things in there. The whole dream sequences that they went back and Mm -hmm. forth with as he was Mm -hmm. trying to recover from his injuries and Mm -hmm. all. I know I felt like they did that a little too often to prove a point that they had already proved. The quick love interest felt forced. I don't know. Just didn't work for Mm -hmm. me as well. I still love the movie. Just didn't work as well. Mm. You know, two things struck me in watching American Werewolf again. The first is that when we saw this in the 80s, this was a horror film. Yeah. Yeah. Watching it now, this doesn't feel like a horror film at all. Mm-mm. No. It's a drama, kind of, right? Like it's, comedy, it's maybe? Character study? A little bit. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah, it's a... Ki- there you go. Yeah, it's there's nothing jarringly scary in it. The attacks are very brief and very predictable. And because they're using, well, I love practical makeup effects, especially his victims who are decaying and decomposing mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. see them as they die. Yep. Love that stuff about it. But I noticed so much of the special effects was done in camera and during editing. Like the guy's being chased to the subway by the werewolf. Okay. And you almost yeah. never see him. I'm going right? to get to that scene in a right. minute. You see the guy running and there's a werewolf somewhere, I guess. And then later you see him briefly. But today that would be, you would see the werewolf slamming against walls and skittering around. Oh, sure. CGI. And now it's just like, yeah. pretend the werewolf is there. You just had to assume quick cuts and quick edits to make you think horrible things were happening that weren't. Yeah, I think he's trying to pull the whole Jaws thing, right? Where you don't really see the shark a whole lot, but you didn't have to. And I think that's because... Spielberg, I think, is a much better director and was able to pull it <laughs> yes, off a lot yes, better, right? <laughs> let's be honest. And when I watched it, I mean, I get what you're saying. The thing that got me was the dialogue seemed very odd. 
it had a hmm. weird pace to it for me. Like when I was listening to it, it just seemed like, I don't know, it just seemed like just weird. Like the way, just the way we were speaking, like it didn't seem natural. But hmm. I thought the funniest parts for me were like listening to the dead people, like the people he was going to kill and yes. all that stuff. They were yep. hilarious. <laughs> and their dialogue yep. was great. Yeah, but I get what you're saying. So I want to dive into a couple of things on this film because it does hold such a place in my heart. But Moe's exactly right. The dialogue is terrible. Stilted. Uh, especially, yeah, yeah, stilted yeah. at the beginning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. David Nottingham, who plays the lead character, the werewolf, you know, mm-hmm. the guy who gets attacked and becomes a werewolf. There are two films of his that I like during this period, American Werewolf in London. There's another one that most people don't like called Hot Dog the Movie. TNA oh, film about people yeah. on the ski slope. He's the main character in that one as well. Okay. I think because of this movie, they said, let's put him mm. in another vehicle and see if he's a star. Um, he was way better in that film with his dialogue and his line delivery than he was in this film. It's not even close. Another thing, John, you talked about that subway scene. Mm-hmm. Is that not the most least athletic human being in England at the time? <laughs> well, he's British. He, oh, still. <laughs> Gee, okay. with the umbrella and all now that, we're going to get emails. On. Thanks. <laughs> but he, like, he can barely walk. He stumbles on the escalator, throws his briefcase into the air, gets a bloody nose, and then he just lays there for he what just seemed there like with a werewolf 10 after minutes. Him. I'm like, didn't work at all. And it's another example of something I think Landis doesn't do well because he wrote and directed this film. Mm-hmm. I don't think he does action well at all. That scene needed more action in order to make you feel scared like you talked about. There was about, no John. terror. This no. was supposed to be a horror film we thought back then. Mm-hmm. Back then. We see it now. There's nothing scary because of scenes like this. Yeah. No, I, I'm with you. Yeah. What's the other point? I, well, the other thing I think is that at the end of the movie, the resolution, mm-hmm. he talks with Griffin Dunn in the theater and Griffin Dunn and the people, as Mo said, they were hilarious. You know, you mm-hmm. killed me, blah, blah, blah. We yeah. don't want to talk to you. Yeah. <laughs> they were funny. But then, you know, he's tearing off his clothes in the theater. Everybody get out. John, you talk about the practical effects in scene. I think Mo's right on that he tried to do what Spielberg did with Jaws, but mm-hmm. there were better films that did this same kind of thing mm-hmm. where you don't see the monster like Alien, right? Around this time period mm-hmm. where yeah. you never see the alien. And when you do, it scares the ever-loving crap out of you, yeah. right? You don't have to see it because the music and scene, all that make exactly enough, right? I think the makeup effects in this one, everybody knows mm-hmm. the transformation scene. Awesome. Yeah. Yep. It yeah. was an awesome yep. achievement for cool. day. It, it kind of doesn't hold up great these days, no. even for other practical effects, but it was still awesome for the time and yeah, yeah. very but pivotal. Every yeah. single attack scene in this movie is fucking comical. Yawn. They are terrible. Yep. It's yep. It looks like just a wolf's head smacking somebody around yeah. that somebody's got yep. on a broomstick or something. It's awful. They were <laughs> it terrible. It was. <laughs> and it's kind of like I feel like with Jaws. Jaws was best when you didn't see the shark. When you finally did see the shark at the end of the movie, you're like, that just looks like a model with gaskets that aren't working right. (laughs) Which it was. So I don't think Landis did a great job with this film. That's kind of where I'm going. This is one that I would love to see a modern remake of because I love the approach where it's everybody idea, knows yeah. werewolves exist. Mm-hmm. He People even tell him, he's like, oh, I don't believe that. Mm-hmm. And then it starts to happen to him. I love the analytical approach, the angle that it took, uh, but it just didn't hold up for me like I remember it. It's just not a horror movie anymore. Yeah. I could see a remake of this and be happy with it. There are films I don't want you to touch in remakes. This is one I could see. This one yeah, could use it. A couple, yeah. my last two things on this is one is like, yeah, they absolutely should do a remake on this one. 
That'd be great. <laughs> my favorite part of this movie actually was the idea that the people he kills don't die right? or not mm-hmm. completely They're in die. limbo, right? They were limbo, yeah, which I think is awesome. Great. Here's a, a little trivia thing I found. The nurse, the character who plays a nurse. Uh-huh. Jenny Augerter. You have all seen her in a movie not that long ago, which was Winter Soldier. Yeah, Winter Soldier. She's one of the S.H.I.E.L.D.'s heads. Mm-hmm. She's on the, oh. not S.H.I.E.L.D., she's the head of the governing body that S.H.I.E.L.D. Right. listens to, yeah. Huh. That was actually her. So I was like, oh, cool. Yeah. But yeah, well, And she had been in stuff before this, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. Logan's Run, most notably. Yep. Oh, yeah, yep. <laughs> well, the last thing I noted was a casting item. You know, Frank Oz was in the Blues Brothers. He was the guy, he was the property master at the prison right. when John Belushi's character was getting out. Stand behind right? one. And he's yeah. like, one hat, black, one suit, black, right? all that stuff. <laughs> Frank Oz had a brief appearance in this film. He was the guy from the American Embassy when the guy mm-hmm. first wakes up in the hospital. And I'm watching, I'm like, is that Frank Oz? <laughs> Holy crap, it is. He's in Mr. a bunch Kessler. of movies. Mr. Kessler. Mr. Kessler. Yes. There's no reason to, for hysterics. Mr. Kessler. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. And apparently Frank Oz is in the uh, John Landis Repertory Company because he pops up again and again in his films. Uh, we'll come across him again. But all right, let's move <laughs> along from America Werewolf. Uh, fine film, not a horror any longer. Let's move on into i think one of the great classics of the mid 80s trading places yeah okay yep yes i'll give Absolutely. you that one yep love this 1983 film. uh rotten tomatoes gave it an 88 i don't know probably the audience probably gave it 102 i was I gonna know. say that's damn low <laughs> yeah trading places great film if you haven't seen it what are you doing listening to a gen x podcast you should be watching that film but it holds up a well. snobbish investor and a wily street con artist find their positions reversed as part of a bet by two callous millionaires right so you got dan Aykroyd <laughs> and you got eddie murphy uh, and I, I should mention Jamie Lee Curtis as a notable yes. cameo in this film. Well worth well, watching. That was a cameo. That was like a oh, right. an appearance. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. fair enough. Yeah. What a cool. Watching this again was easy. A treat. Yeah. So, yeah, I agree. It was really easy. And I think something that you mentioned earlier, George, which I think probably takes effect here is like, I think the reason why this was so good is that he let Eddie Murphy be Eddie Murphy in this. You know what I mean? Yeah. And. That carry, I mean, Eddie Murphy carried the movie. I mean, even Dan Aykroyd's character, I don't think did as nearly a good as job as Eddie no. Murphy's character. Um, pretty much all the movies I saw, this one held up the best, I think. Mm-hmm. So, Mo, I'm going to go back to something you said. You said he let Eddie Murphy be Eddie Murphy. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I agree with that statement. I think Eddie Murphy just took over his damn movie. <laughs> well, that's a, that's Eddie a big Murphy's supposition. Based known, on what? what? But Eddie Murphy what? is known for that, though, with yeah, but, Beverly I mean, Hills Cop and all kinds of films. Even later on, we're going to talk about another Landis and Eddie Murphy collaboration. And I've watched documentaries about this one that we're going to talk about at the end. And they got into big fights on that set because Murphy said, Nope, we're doing it this way. And Landis was like, Nope, I'm mm. doing it my way. And Murphy won. And thank God he did because yeah, it was but a this great was film. also early in his acting career too. I mean, he was still like, this was one of his breakout movies, wasn't it? It, it was, but he was already super widely popular because of SNL. No, Remember true. when he came into films, he didn't ask to make films. They asked him to go to movies. It mm-hmm. was a different thing than like when Belushi and Ackroyd did the blues brothers. That was Lorne Michaels, right? Hey, we need you guys to make a movie because these characters are popular. But Eddie Murphy, uh, this wasn't supposed to be an SNL thing. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Like I said, I, I wasn't, I don't know, but it's, it's just from looking at previous movies and stuff, it seems like he does let, when he has like really good talent, I think he lets them do what they got to do. I think it's a he's... more relaxed form of storytelling. I, I got to say that if Eddie Murphy's presence created better storytelling for the whole movie, good on him. But I got to give Landis a little bit of credit here. If he's in charge of this film, 
film. Yeah. If he didn't fight Murphy on it, whatever happened, it turned out to be a more cohesive film that holds up better and was told better. I'm yeah. not going to give him credit because of what we're going to talk about next, because okay. you, you guys keep saying he's in charge of the film and he lets people do what they want. The next film is a classic example of a director doing way the wrong things for way the wrong reasons and real consequences coming out of it. Well, I, to that's that point, why I don't think that Landis deserves the credit that you guys are giving him that he lets these people do. I don't think Landis is, I, I just don't like him. I, I said at the beginning, podcast, if you're going to give it. him the blame for the bad things that happen, part of you has got to give him some credit for the good things that happen. It can't just be just one side. One He's other. either responsible that, or not. Well, yeah, it, yeah. That means I have to say, well, it was a Holocaust, but at least he organized Germany. So Hitler's okay. No, <laughs> that is not what I said. That is not even close to what I said. That is a good argument. You credit for the good stuff. I'm saying if something comes out, now we're doing a Gen X grown up debate episode. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I I won't fight you on that, but I will say that I disagree that he can't just be held responsible for the bad things and not get credit for things that turned out well. So it's either responsible or not one of the, I I don't think they have to be mutually exclusive. I think both things can be true. I think both things are true. That's the point. I want them to be true. You just made my point. Yes. (laughs) I'm talking about my two opinions, not your two. (laughs) Oh, oh, not not my two opinions. Your two opinions. All right. All right. I think we've, we've, we've finished praising trading places. Why don't we go ahead, George, and segue into what you want to talk about? In fact, 1983, another film, same year. Yeah, same year. Yeah. Twilight Zone, the movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If anybody listening to this podcast hadn't picked up on what we were going to talk about, again, <laughs> right. like John said, what are you doing to listen to our podcast? Go back and watch some 80s films. I'll give you the synopsis. Four horror and science fiction segments directed by four famous directors of the time, each mm-hmm. of them being a new version of a classic story from Rod Serling's landmark television series, The Twilight mm-hmm. Zone. Yep. So I have a lot of twisted emotions about this film. When I yeah. first saw the film as a younger person, not knowing what really happened because I didn't watch news or anything like that. And there were only three news channels. Anyway, I didn't understand everything that went on with this movie at the time. I really liked this film. I really enjoyed the four different segments. I still remember them all to this day. So as you said, George, four different directors directed parts of this film. And so we could talk about the whole film, but mainly we're going to focus on what John Landis did. And he Mm -hmm. did the prologue, which was the little bit at the beginning uh, where uh, Dan Aykroyd and this other guy were in a car together and they pull over. You want to see something really scary? Yeah. Yeah, let me see. And he attacks him. It's just just a little quick snippet. But then the main thing, the, the segment, one of the four stories, Landis did the first one. It was called Time Out, and it was a remake of A Quality of Mercy from the original Twilight Zone series. That is the one starring Vic Morrow that we're talking about here Mm. that actually went sideways during production. Yeah, and so we now know through courtroom cases and documentaries and eyewitness accounts and things that essentially Landis made decisions that got three people killed. That's what it boils Mm -hmm. down to. I'm not going to sugarcoat it, and I don't care if anybody disagrees with me or not. He got three people killed because he made poor decisions based on what he wanted to do. And it goes back to what we were talking about before, John. This is why I don't like him and why I have a hard time giving him credit for anything now, because there is a part of human history that is awful and it is solely attributed to him and the man wouldn't even own up to it in the court cases i i i don't have any respect for a human being who can at least own up to something they did especially something that cost somebody their life two children i mean Uh, two children and vic morrow god bless him he was trying to do the right thing 
there are people who were on that set that day that said he like they could see him trying to cover those children as that helicopter mm-hmm. crashed yep. down on them. Yeah. Right. So it, essentially, the if you haven't seen it, uh, just briefly, uh, it's a guy who's very uh, bigoted and racist, mm-hmm. and he he ends up in a Twilight Zoney kind of thing. He gets teleported to different places. He's like in the old South, and people see him as an African American, and yep. he's like in, he's in Nazi Germany as a Jewish he's in person. Nazi Germany. People yep. see him as a Jew, yeah. right? And so he he looks like him, but when he gets teleported to these places, people see him as that. Like a quantum leap kind of thing. That's right. Yep. The scene we're talking about took place in Vietnam and mm-hmm. to try to soften his character, who is this bigot, as he's starting to realize the error of his ways, like, let's have him do something heroic and save these two orphans. It's like a Scrooge moment, right? It's the yeah, waking up right. and having gone through the horrors and now realizing you need to be a different person. Yeah. And I, I know we're just focusing on this accident from this film, but frankly, that has overshadowed the film for me, knowing yeah. what happened in the film. It's like, it's so much less important the film. It's like real life. And to your point, Landis did make decisions. Like, I won't even enumerate them. You could do a whole backtrack talking about the, the story of this. There's a whole but Wikipedia page yeah, on he, this thing. He didn't have a teacher or a tutor on set. They weren't supposed to work at night, all these different things. And he just, he made decisions to get it done mm-hmm. in unsafe conditions, without the right safety things, without the right practices. They had one take to get it, whatever. And the worst possible thing happened. Right. And it wasn't even that there were a bunch of yes men around him saying, oh, sure, boss, we can do it that way. There were mm. people actively arguing against his decisions on set. He's like, that the he boss. was sending home and firing and all kinds of horrible stuff. I mean, this film made me feel as though Landis is a megalomaniac, especially later on. There's a film we're going to talk about where he got into some pretty hot arguments with his star that kind Mm -hmm. of also perpetuate that theory. But this one had the most tragic and horrible consequences imaginable in any, nobody should ever die making a movie. I don't disagree with any of that. You've got to think there were probably Landis and others, lots of people in that era made lots of stupid decisions that just didn't lead to something this terrible happening. And they got away with it. Right. I mean, this this caused a lot of changes in the whole industry. And and had that helicopter crash not happened, we'd have never heard about Landis doing it quite honestly, but we did. It came out. Yeah. Yeah. So again, a film, like you said, John, overshadowed by tragedy and rightfully mm-hmm. so overshadowed by tragedy at this point. But there was some good storytelling going on that was born out of the original Twilight Zone series. So mm-hmm. I have to give the original series the credit for the story. And I'm going to give Landis the blame for what happened. Yeah, I, nothing wrong with that. And just from the the segment he did, I didn't particularly care for it anyway, to be quite honest, just because I thought the story was it was very it was just not good. No, there was no subtlety about it at all. There was nothing. It, it was, was just, not subtle. Right. I mean, they were working from an original script and re-envisioning mm-hmm. it, but it was very there was very little subtlety, as you said. Yeah. It was very well, you got to feel yeah. that that was probably put together hastily. There was probably a lot of execs going, should we, shouldn't we, should we, should oh, we include whole, this yeah, in the film at that time? Not, put so, it back Together. Yeah, yeah, there were question whether you released the whole movie at one point. Right. And I mean, I know that being a student of film history, directors almost always say one of the most important elements of a film is the editing. And you, there's no way the editing really was able to be done on that segment because who wants to watch those scenes and then try to make something out of it? Yeah. Yeah. I just don't want to go through it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. One more segment coming. We're going to uh, we're going to turn to a lighter note. We have three late '80s comedies, all directed by Landis. We were going to talk about right after this break. We'll see you on the other side. 
Well, hey, podcast listener. My name is Vince, and I'm the host of a show called The RR Show. It stands for Reddit Readings. We're going to sit down twice a week, and I'm going to bring you the most entertaining stories from all of the best subreddits that exist online. Things like malicious compliance, petty revenge, hey, lady, I don't work here. Oh, there's so much more. Lots of great stories and things you won't believe. Like the one time uh, this dude was caught in a bathroom with his friend and he was slapping them because that was the only way that he could actually legitimately help them. A mall cop comes in with a taser. Oh, yeah, the rest is history. It's going to be fun. There is, uh, well, I don't know, I got like 20 seconds left, so I don't got much more time to tell you another story. But just join me on The RR Show. It's from Evergreen Podcast, produced in partnership with Wessler Media. So The RR Show. Wherever you get podcasts, subscribe today, and uh, it's like an adult story time. Let's hang out together. The RR Show. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. If you're a diehard Gen X grown-up, you can pledge your support by clicking join on YouTube or by becoming a patron at genxgrownup.com slash Patreon. Let's ride! The Three Amigos. They were the biggest stars of their day. The three amigos are history. But that was yesterday. Look, boys, I know show business. Something always turns up. Telegram for the three amigos. Whew, okay, that was some heavy talk before. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and we needed to. I mean, honestly, it deserved it. I mean, let's be you honest. You can't talk about it, it and not talk about it. It absolutely that, right? deserved it. But the movies that he made in the late 80s were as far from that as you're going to get. I mean, they were all like these lighthearted, kind of goofy sort of films. And the first one we're going to talk about was in 1985, which starred Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd. It's called Spies Like Us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> With God. not a great movie, in my opinion. I didn't like it when it first came out. Got a Rotten Tomato score of 32. And for the people who have yeah. not seen it and can avoid seeing it now, it's basically <laughs> two uh, two bumbling government employees think they're U.S. spies, only discover they're actually decoys for nuclear war. Yeah, it was it was a waste of talent, actually, in my opinion. L- let me tell you, this is the first film I ever fell asleep in the theater watching. I went with friends. <laughs> it's a comedy. And that is like the worst. That is like a kiss of death for a comedy. And so now, of course, decades later, I'm like, I'm going to do a podcast about this movie. I'm going to watch the whole thing. And I watched the whole thing. And about three quarters of the way through, I went, is there a story going on at no. all in this movie? And look, you have Dan Aykroyd. You have Chevy Chase. I mentioned Frank Oz shows up again, you know, from the Landis. Bob yeah. Hope makes a freaking cameo yeah. playing through. It's sketch comedy. It's more like Kentucky Fried Movie than anything else. It's a bunch of little sketches. Let's do a sketch of them doing a surgery. Let's do a sketch of them greeting each other. Doctor, 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 doctor. It's a bunch of goofy little things about them in training, about them taking a test. And it wasn't until the very end that there was even a story, and it wasn't even a good story. And, and uh, one more thing, I, I think this <laughs> was a linchpin for me. I don't think I like Chevy Chase. Mm-hmm. I think I don't like the actor now that I've seen this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this was one of the original seven. So when I first bought a DVD player, I remember telling you guys I got seven free DVDs. Uh-huh. This was one of the ones no, in no. that set. Okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> so I watched this one multiple times because when you get a DVD player yeah, and you have seen it, yeah. seven DVDs, what it are you going to Looks you're awesome. Gonna, you're going to watch them over and over again. I didn't dislike this movie quite as much as John did, but I admit this is not a good film. Mm-hmm. Rotten Tomatoes 32 might be generous. Yeah. It was, 
it was cheesy. It was hokey. Dialogue was stilted and terrible. I agree with John. I don't like Chevy Chase either. He's mm. got one film that I like of his that I can think of, National Lampoon's Vacation. Vacation. What about Caddyshack? Yeah. He was good in that. Uh, I don't consider that a Chevy Chase film. He's in it. <laughs> That's not a Chevy Chase film to me. That's a Bill Murray film. Mm. It, it's an okay film. It's one that we can spend as little time as possible discussing. It was a John <laughs> Lindis film in the late 80s. It was a comedy there was a couple of big boobs and Dan Aykroyd's wife in the movie. So it was to me, it was, it was a buddy movie that never was a buddy movie. Yeah. It was supposed to be it a buddy movie. It didn't seem to blend very well, did they? Yeah. No. Now that you mentioned it. They yeah. never clicked. So let's move on. I, I had one laugh out loud okay. moment. I'll give it credit. Right after they parachute down and they get in a little fight with the guy who's training them. Oh yeah. Bernie Casey. <laughs> and he goes, what is that? It's a dick fur. What's a dick fur? It's what you pee with. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what a dad joke. And I laughed out loud. <laughs> All right. You got okay. one. There's there's too much to to not like right. about this one. The only thing I want to say is you talked about they didn't gel well together. Aykroyd and Murphy gelled perfectly together. Aykroyd and Chase, nope. No, not nope. at all. Chevy Chase and his punchable face, that jerk. I don't like him. Okay. <laughs> Let's move on to another ensemble piece. Uh, one year later, 1986, The Three Amigos. Why are we going to move on to this one? We just said we don't like Chevy Chase. <laughs> well, he was in it. Well, what can we do? Here we are. <laughs> I did like the other two people that were the three amigos, the other two thirds. Right. Yeah, Steve like. Martin and Martin Short. Yeah, that's right. Awesome. All right. And, and it, so it starts, you think it's about actual, these Spanish bandito guys, but none of them are Spanish. Like what's going on? Well, yeah. it turns out it's about three actors who accept an invitation to a Mexican village to perform their on-screen bandit fighter roles, not knowing they're really being asked to come and help the village by people who think they're real. And so Which they think they're acting. Premise. Cool premise. <laughs> yep. And, uh, I love the names of the three guys. Lucky Day, Ned Niederlander, and Dusty Bottoms. <laughs> just great names for the characters. So, John, I want to point out, we talk about not liking Chevy Chase. I don't think uh, Steve Martin and uh, Martin Short like him either. Well, I guess not because they're doing a thing now, aren't they? Exactly. John, <laughs> yeah. one of John's favorite TV series that's going on right now is Steve Martin and Martin Short. Chevy Chase nowhere near it. So I'm guessing maybe they don't like him Actually, either. See, Martin and Martin Short even have a, a touring show they do now. Mm -hmm. yep. Without Chevy Chase, obviously. <laughs> and no Chevy Chase on the bill at all. <laughs> so are we going to talk about Landis' involvement in this movie? Because, I mean, it wasn't a great film. What was the Rotten Tomatoes on this, John? Do you know? Uh, 45. And wow, that's generous. Yeah, that's way generous. I would tend to agree. I, I just rewatched it. I, I, watching it now, I'm not sure if I ever watched it from beginning to end before. Like, <laughs> I know I saw it. It was on HBO a million times and I saw pieces of it. Right. I'm not sure I watched it from beginning to end until now. And it didn't make it any more cohesive. Honestly, it was still kind of motivations were questionable a bit in it. And I hate to be crapping on these, what I thought were seminal 80s films. And now I'm not so sure that they are, but that's how I felt about it. Rewatching it now. Yeah, but we were kids. Everybody saw this movie. Oh, of course. You know? I mean, yeah. so when you say like yeah. some of the movies, I mean, not all landmark movies had to be good, I guess, you know, <laughs> um, it's just that they were popular. Everyone wants to go see them, even though they weren't awesome, quite honestly. I don't think this one's in any danger of being included on the AFI top 100 list. No, no, no probably not. You know, and Mo, back then I thought they were good movies, though. Mm -hmm. I think what I turned, maybe I liked was I liked the one-liners. I liked the quotable mm. stuff. I liked yeah. the goofy situations. But now that I've seen what movie has evolved into, I look back and I go, not just for the time, I know that cinematography and, and mm -hmm. you know uh, things have evolved, but even just storytelling, that's something that just isn't present in some of these films that Landis 
yeah. did. Yeah. That he gets credit for being, you know, this great seminal director. And he's kind of just was a guy who made films in that era. He's not <laughs> he as, made a lot of films. as great as I thought he was. Yeah, he did a lot of films. Well, do we have anything that we can talk about in the late 80s? And I'm saying this with full knowledge that we do have one more film. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness you didn't set me up for failure. Right. No, of course. <laughs> that we can talk about that is at least something we could end with on some positive notes. So, yes, oh, sure. we do. I'm going to announce it. Coming to America, 1988, Rotten Tomato mm-hmm. score 73, deserves mm-hmm. way higher than 73. I, I That's some bullshit. Be higher, for sure. Yep. 88, probably on my index, maybe 90. Mm. I'll give you the synopsis. An extremely pampered African prince travels to Queens, New York, and goes mm-hmm. undercover mm-hmm. to find a wife that he can respect for her intelligence and strong will. If you don't know, there's a sequel. Just came out a year or so mm-hmm. ago yeah. during the whole yep. COVID thing that was yep. pretty funny as well. This is one of those films that... In my mind, regardless of who directed it or not, it was an Eddie Murphy film. I don't. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a John Landis film, in my opinion. It's an Eddie Murphy film. I mean, okay. yeah. So, I mean, do you base that on what you saw in the film, or other things that you have learned since then, or a combination? Uh, probably a combination. So, okay. I think you could have had any director on set, and this movie is still as good as it is. Mm-hmm. That's that's my first opinion. Second opinion: there have been a couple of different documentaries that have watched since then about the making of coming to America, especially stuff that came out when coming to America with the two number. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the sequel. When that came out, people were revisiting the old film. There was apparently several huge fights on set between Murphy and Landis Ooh. that I alluded to earlier. Mm-hmm. And Murphy won every argument because the studio basically said, Landis, shut up. It's Eddie fucking Murphy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let him do his thing. Yeah. Yeah. He was at the height of his career at that point, 88. Oh, yeah, he was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We talked about the Kentucky Fried movie, which was a series of sketches that were not connected. We just talked about Spies Like Us, which I felt was like a series of unconnected sketches. Coming to America is also a series of sketches. You have repeating sketch of the guys in the barbershop. Mm-hmm. You have what's going on at McDowell's or McDougal's. Right. What's the McDowell's? Right? Yep. McDowell's, McDowell's yeah. right? The, the knockoff of McDonald's. You have sexual chocolate, right? Yeah. <laughs> that boy, good. Right? You, you have so much in it, but all of those are connected. They're actually woven into the story here. They're not little standalone sketches. They all play into each other, which you can see. Maybe you can see some of Land his fingerprints on this some of his earlier films because of how it's structured but the structure is so much more mature and maybe that's or the collaborators or maybe it's because Eddie Murphy you know smoothed it over I don't know but it's a evolved version of what we saw in some of his earlier films it seems to me hmm. so for me I think the one thing that this film has over a lot of the others that we've talked about not all of them but a lot of them it has heart we talk yeah. about that it's an mm-hmm. intangible yes. thing to mm-hmm. describe but this film has heart there are even some nice callbacks at the very end when he and Lisa McDowell are walking back to his apartment along the riverfront and he sees two bums sitting on the mm-hmm. pier. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He hands them a Trading big places. paper bag full of cash and it's the two, you know, <laughs> yep. it's the two old guys from Trading Places. We're back. We're back. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, obviously there are great scenes in this movie that I get why you say it's like segments, John, mm-hmm. but Eddie Murphy's character and his heart and his through line and the love story with trying to find the love of his life versus mm-hmm. the princess who hops on one leg and barks like a dog for <laughs> yeah although she was pretty hot but two yeah, movies that. she was pretty hot and i would have taken her I, I wouldn't have gone to queens but <laughs> i mean it was 
it's still to this day of of the films on this list. It's my favorite by far. It's not mm. even close. Yeah, yeah. It, it does mean, stand it, up. That's it's one like many of these that yeah. don't. It's one that does stand up. It got mm-hmm. a sequel, which was a great sequel, fun to watch. Yeah. So yeah. I think we've established that George is not going to give Landis any credit for anything he did <laughs> because it's tarnished what he has. But yeah, I mean, he was involved in all of this. The odd thing is, you could say, hey, he was involved in all these great films, but they're not all great films. No. Now that I look back on them, they were films that were touchstones. They were landmarks that you remember. I remember that came out. I remember right. Twilight Zone. I remember Spies Like... I remember falling asleep at Spies Like Us, right? <laughs> but I remember like when Trading Places came out, American Blues Brothers. I mean, I remember... Of course. Oh, yeah. Those were all yep. big movies at the time. I still remember that. They were. Yeah. And I think I agree. It's like his... I don't know. It's like a lot of these don't stand up well. Mm-hmm. And I think it, maybe it's the dialogue. Maybe it's the fact that they're not... Like, we we want more stories now. I think we expect more from movies that we that mm-hmm. just didn't deliver on, except for a few cases. But they were important movies to me as I was growing up. They were. I I think the one thing I can say to kind of summarize my opinion of Landis, because that's what the podcast is supposed to be about in this episode is Landis, is his reputation to me was falsely earned. I think the majority of what was good in his films had more to do with the talented people in the films than with him. And I think what was mostly wrong in a lot of his films, especially the horrible tragedies, was solely laid at his feet. I know that that may not be a fair opinion because, you know, like you said, John, if you give him credit for the good things, you, you know, blah, blah, blah. I... (laughs) Blah blah blah. Well, I'm not, blah, I don't blah, remember yeah. your, your opinion. Quote. Whatever you said, no, yeah. I got you. <laughs> um, but I, I just, I don't think his reputation is fairly earned. Hmm. Well, what do you think in hindsight? Now we, we've spoken at length for the last hour about Landis oh, these boy. films. So, what's your takeaway? How do you feel? I. You know, I I do believe in separating the the person from what they produce, like the art from the artist, as much as I can. Mm-hmm. You know, like I said, I right. mean, we talked about there's some things that happened that it, it seems like a shame to tarnish everything that he did. When he said there's a lot of people on these films that did a lot of great work, that they were still good movies, even though the person who did them maybe wasn't so great. I just think that the movies, I think they just in general they weren't very sophisticated, mm. which is not a mm-hmm. like. And when you're in a teenager, you don't care. That's fine. <laughs> you know? Good point. Yeah. You right. know? Mm-hmm. But now you look back, like the ones that it seems like we like the best were the ones that had the most story, had the most heart in it, mm-hmm. you know, most yep. cohesive. And that's what we can look for today. So I think for that reason, they just didn't stand up very well. Yeah. I- I'm going to withhold judgment until I've had a chance to see Schlock because that's a piece of his. <laughs> <laughs> It's a piece of his filmography <laughs> that I've not seen yet. It might tie it all together, right? Yeah. It's the thread that runs through it. Yeah, it's, it definitely, I look at him now as being a very, almost infamous director, other than famous director. It's like he he was so tarnished, and now knowing what we know, you know, how he took responsibility or didn't, you know, in light of that. Yeah, it's, I mean, worth talking about. It's like you talk about everyone, regardless of their role, because they had an impact on our Gen X youth. And mm-hmm. so this has been our look at those Gen X films of John Landis. So, hey, fourth listener, let us know what you you think either about the films themselves or the director we'd love to hear is a fourth listener email you know how to hit us up uh, before we get out of this show i do want to take a quick second to welcome a brand new financial supporter Woo. over on patreon uh, i want to welcome dave a hey, hey dave welcome hey. thank you so much welcome dave he just joined us at that three dollar level he loves the stuff we do and he said we want to show his support uh help keep gas in the tank and man you have done it thank you so much for your support thank you to you and everyone who supports us whether it's on patreon or over on youtube 
It means so much to us. And hey, you look in the show notes. If you want to join Dave, we'd love to have you <laughs> along for the ride. <laughs> That's going to wrap it up for this Backtrack. We'll be back in two weeks with another one. Hope to see you there. Uh, and a regular edition of our show is coming your way next Thursday. Until then, I am John. George, thank you so much for being here. Yes, sir. Mo, you know I appreciate you. Um, always fun, man. Fourth listener, it's you, though, we all appreciate most of all. And we will talk to you next time. Bye-bye. See you guys. Take care, everybody. GenX Grown Up is a member of the Evergreen Podcast family. Learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com. Unacceptable for grown-ups. Your dinner cannot just be french fries. Basically, life sucks as a grown-up. I'm good on the promo. Okay. All right. Promo in five, four, three. Boy, that promo does not fit. No, but no, no. Read, reread it. Right. I didn't say great movies. I didn't say. Yeah. I didn't say good, good, a great iconic movies. <laughs> I said they were landmarks. That, yeah. They were okay. things we remember in our youth. I didn't say yep. what a great guy. He just yeah. sounds way more positive than. <laughs> <laughs> what we just I, delivered. I tried to be as neutral as I could while still <laughs> hyping the show. Yep. <laughs>